Well, in the reading that Nancy shared with you before, we've got some really good advice about how to live our lives. It was really good advice 2,000 years ago when Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, shared it with the believers at the church in Ephesus. And it continues, I think, to be really good advice for today. What I hope you noticed were the first two words of our text. The first two words of our text were, Be careful, or be very careful. How many times have you ever heard those words in your life? Be careful, be careful. I have no idea how many times my grandparents who raised me said those two words to me as I was growing up. Uh, I suspect it was a lot. Be careful. Now, it's kind of funny, uh, I don't remember so much the times when I actually took their advice as to when I didn't take their advice, like the time my grandpa was going to light the pilot light in the church basement and told me once he threw the match in not to look in. And I did. You ever know that sound? I remember going downtown where my aunt worked as a beautician so she could trim my eyebrows, my eyelashes, the front part of my hair that was singed off. I remember being told one time, be careful, don't poke that broomstick in that hole because there are wasps that live in there. Oh, really? (laughs) And yet I know that they always told me to be careful not because they were trying to control my life, but they were telling me to be careful because they loved me. They wanted to keep me safe. And and I think that's exactly what Paul is saying here to the church in Ephesus. Uh, He he loves these people. Speaking on behalf of God, he says, I I know God, God loves you, and so that's why he's telling you to be careful. He wants what's the best for you. He cares about their well-being. And so he says to these believers, pay attention, be very careful then, how you live. In other words, there is a right way and a wrong way to live. I don't know about you, how many of you have discovered that you don't accidentally do things right? You tend to accidentally do things wrong. And that's because it's kind of like that slow drift that the praise team sang about at the beginning. You kind of drift with the current of society and you kind of mess up your life without much planning at all. But if our lives are supposed to be very meaningful, if they're supposed to be rewarding, then I think we would be best off following the admonitions of the Lord to exercise due thought, due diligence. That's why be very careful then how you live. And then Paul goes on and gives us some directives for living. Here's the first one. He says, make the most of every opportunity. I mean, there are all kinds of opportunities that come down the road. In fact, I wonder, I challenge you today to sit down and prayerfully ask yourself these questions. What good things do you think God still has in store for you in 2012? I mean, in Ephesians 2.10, many of us know Ephesians 2.8.9, which is for by grace you are saved through faith, but we often forget verse 10. It says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Notice this next phrase, which God has prepared 
in advance for us to do. I hope you, you get the significance of that last phrase there, which God has prepared in advance for you to do. God already knows the opportunities He has for you today, tomorrow, the rest of this year, and however many years He gives you. <clears throat> and the neat thing is He's already made the preparations. And He's also preparing us as well so that when the opportunity comes, we will have what we need to meet these. We are His workmanship, it says. He's preparing the opportunities. And yet we know Ephesians 5.16 tells us why. You know, we ought to be careful how we live because He says, these are difficult days. We need to be careful. We need to make the most of every opportunity. In other words, we are told to make the best use of our time. I'm going to give you a little Greek lesson this morning because there are three Greek words for time. I think I put them up here. Yeah. One word, one Greek word is hora, from where we get our word hour, kind of keeping track of time. There's also the word chronos, where we get that word chronological. It is a, a, um, a period of measured time. But there is a third word, which is kairos. And kairos is a special occasion. These are the moments or seasons when we might say, opportunities knocking. Now, I'm going to take you back to Christmas for a moment, because I know I talked about this, but I'm kind of sure that most of you forgot it. But back in uh, Christmas time, I preached out of Matthew chapter 2. And I told you about the wise men. And the wise men from the east experienced what we would call a kairos moment in their life. The star appeared, and they recognized it as an opportunity to find something very special. It was an opportunity to see this one that they said would be born king of the Jews. And they made the most of that opportunity. It was a kairos moment. But if you remember, at that very same time, the priests and the teachers in Jerusalem also had this opportunity for a Kairos moment when they came and said, where is this Messiah? Where is he going to be born that we might go and worship him? And in kind of their, their deep-seated indifference to the will of God, they just said, oh, if, you know, it says he's down there and somewhere in this other place. And, and, and so they lost out on an opportunity that was there to also go and worship this Christ child. Now, one thing I've learned in my own life is that God provides all kinds of opportunities for us in this life. It's our responsibility then to be watchful, to pay attention, to make the best use of our time, to see it, see it what it is, and then step into it. Now, personally, I, I really don't want to miss any God-given opportunities that God may have in store for me in these next days. I want to be awake spiritually. I want to pay attention to what's happening. I want to be able to grab whatever opportunity is there while it's still an opportunity. Now, it's interesting that the Bible tells us to do this. Why? Because the days are evil. Would you agree with that? The days are evil. And I've seen a lot of stuff, read a lot of stuff recently that some people say, man, you know, they, they use phrases like we're going to hell in a handbasket. Things are getting worse than ever before. I mean, it, we don't have to stretch our imaginations too much to realize that we live in some pretty evil days. There are evil influences 
all around us. Some of them are far away, but there are evil influences that are around us that work in the world and work on us. And if we're not careful, we can experience that little slow drift, huh? We can experience this kind of a subtle turning aside. We can suddenly find ourselves off the rails, off the tracks, away from our true purpose, our true calling in Jesus Christ. I see it today as people have chosen to pick and choose what they want to believe out of the Bible. It's absolutely amazing to me that we've got the Bible, the pure, unadulterated, inspired, inerrant Word of God, and people say, well, yeah, uh, but this passage here kind of makes us look bad. So maybe we should ignore this passage. Or, well, God said, I just remember a guy telling me one time ago, he asked, he asked me this question. He said, so how old is this junk? He pointed to the Bible. And I said, well, you know, it's a couple of thousand years ago. And I remember he just slammed the book shut and he slid it across the table to me and he says, get with it. He said, these are the 1980s. I remember my response, get gone. (laughs) There's something along those lines. You know, this is the Bible. We don't pick and choose out of it. These are days of evil because it even affects the church as to what we're going to believe. And how we're going to believe it and how we defend it. It's spiritual apathy. People are just plain simple lazy and ignorant and apathetic and don't take time to work the word. This is my good friend Harry Wentz says, when you work the word, the word will work you. And that's not always a comfortable activity, but it's a good activity. Paul is saying that without some due care, Without some due diligence, we can miss seeing and doing the will of God. And as a result, in the circumstances of life, we people find excuses, but they don't find opportunities. Let me give you some examples. I've heard these things before. Well, I can't serve God where I work. I mean, nobody there is a Christian. I mean, it's a horrible environment. I just wish God would let me quit. I've heard something like that before. But you know, another person might say, wow, what an opportunity. None of these people here know Jesus. I mean, just think, I might get, I might be able to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, lead all of these people to Jesus. One person says, man, isn't it just awful, awful today about how so many people deal with psychics and they study the occult. I mean, nobody wants to hear the truth anymore. But another person says, man, these days are evil. But what an opportunity. I mean, people must be really, really hungry for spiritual reality. Man, the stuff they're dabbling in, they must be fed up with the inadequacy of humanism and rationalism. They're ripe for an encounter with the risen Jesus. Man, let me be a part of reaching those people. Now, let me ask you, friends, in your circumstances, do you always see an excuse Or do you see an opportunity? I mean, every season of life, I don't care whether you're a teenager, preteen, I don't care whether you're retired or whatever, every season of life is an opportunity or it's an excuse. Let me just trot you down through some age ranges. Picture yourself being a preteen or a teenager. 
who says, I'm too young. There's too much peer pressure around me. I can't serve God. But maybe, rather than make the excuse, you ought to say, you know, all my friends really kind of wonder what life's all about. I mean, they want something worth living. What an opportunity for me to tell them about God. But what if you're a single person? I mean, you can make this excuse. Oh, I'm so lonely. I mean, I'd love to serve God if he'd only give me a husband or if he only gave me a wife. Now, another single person might actually say, well, how can I help the church? I've got time on my hands. I mean, I'm not, I'm not held down by anything. I'd love to serve the Lord. What if you're a young couple with kids? I mean, you could make an excuse and say, man, our kids are so demanding. We got them in soccer and dancing and ballet, and we got them in everything. We just chase them all over the place. I'm lucky if I can even get to church, let alone to Sunday school. Or you could look upon an opportunity and say, could our family work together in Sunday school? You know, if our whole family could be in charge of something during Sunday school, it, and, and mom and dad and the kids could all work together, what a wonderful ministry opportunity that would be. What if you're just a middle-aged person? You could make an excuse, and you got no idea how much responsibility there is in my life. I mean, i got family, i got work, i got nothing left to give. Or maybe you could look upon an opportunity and say, you know, I'm at the peak of my strength. I mean, if I could just order my priorities the right way, I could really make a difference somewhere. What if you're retired? Oh, I've heard this one way too many times. I'm tired. I did my time. Were you in prison? Is that what you consider church to be prison? I served my time. Let the younger generation do it. What a bunch of weenie excuses. Why not look upon an opportunity and say, hey, I got my retirement income. I don't really need any more money. I got time. What could I possibly do with my time now that would help the kingdom of God? Everything is either an excuse or an opportunity. You remember Esther in the Bible, Queen Esther? She found herself living in an evil time. Haman had gotten the king to make a decree which authorized the genocide of all of the Jews. That included Esther. And it looked like there was going to be a total disaster, but in reality, it was the opportunity of a lifetime Remember when her uncle went to her and said, Esther, God has prepared you for such a time as this. What an opportunity. So I'd ask every last one of you here today, whether you are a preteen little kid, whether you're, you know, you're thinking you're advanced out, you know, living out in Geezerville or something like that, you're all retired and you're out to pasture and you've done your duty to God and His kingdom or whatever, I'd still ask you this question, what has God been preparing you for? It's still out there. How will you respond to the opportunities that God lays in front of you? That's why you need to make the most of your opportunities in these days to come. If some people don't take a stand against the evil that's out there, guess what, friends? The evil will roll right over us. And there will be a day, what does the Bible say, where people come and they want to have their itching ears scratched in church. 
Don't say anything harsh to us, Pastor. Make us feel good. Preach the Barney Gospel to us. I love you. You love me. We're one great big family. I'd sooner die than to do that. Make the most of every opportunity. Here's the second thing. Understand what the Lord's will is. You know, the word translated understand in Romans or in Ephesians 5:17 carries the idea of assembling stuff together in a whole. Now, I'm going to use Jason for an example. I'm not a carpenter. Jason's a builder. I've talked to him about, you know, maybe help me with a project here or there. I tell you, Jason, we could go look at this project, and you could tell me this is all the material you need. I can go down to Lowe's or Home Depot or whatever. I can buy all that material. I can lay it on my back patio. And guess what? I would just stand there and look at it. I have no concept of what boards and nails and screws and windows and all this other stuff is. I, to me, it's just a big pile of stuff that I bought at Lowe's. But I have a sneaking feeling. Use my mother-in-law's example. Married to a guy for many, many years who could walk into a kitchen and immediately see how all of this stuff fits together. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really cool stuff. That's what it means to understand, to see how everything fits together. I mean, can you look at the circumstances in your life and see how it all fits together? Can we see the big picture of all of God's purposes and, and put our immediate circumstances into that context? Have you ever heard that phrase, I can't see the forest because of the trees? Most of us have heard that. That's the way some people live their lives. Every event is a tree. It has no concept, context. It has no point of reference. It, it's not associated with any higher purpose. So when a difficulty arises, what do I see? I see a tree. I see trouble. I see discouragement. No, look beyond the trees. There's a whole forest out there. See, God, what does the Bible says? God works all things together. All things together to build my character and my faith. Understand what the Lord's will is. Well, I put a few passages up here. I mean, what is the Lord's will? Romans 8 says to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. That's God's will, that you become more and more like Jesus. First Thessalonians says it's God's will that you should be sanctified, which is a nice word for saying cleaned up because you're filthy. It's God's will that you get cleaned up. 1 Thessalonians 5, giving thanks in all things, for that is God's will for you. I mean, God's will is primarily focused on transformation. I give you the Lutheran stuff today. What is justification? Justification is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. His suffering, His death, and resurrection to make us right again with God. But then, he says, when you become a Christ follower, you get the Holy Spirit, and then comes sanctification. I'm going to give you a theology lesson today. It's that process by which you become sanctified, that you live holy lives that are in reflection. If you call yourself a Christ follower, you ought to look like a Christ follower. Driving down to Nagadoches yesterday, I saw a sign. I guess it's got too many letters, Eddie, so don't worry about it. I'm not going to put this one up here. It said, but it says, are you a Christian on your Facebook status? I thought that was kind of interesting. Got a Facebook? Could people look at your Facebook account and tell you're a Christian? Or you go, holy moly, look at those pictures. 
Oh my gosh, look at the language there. Oh my gosh, look what they just shared. See, we need to understand things and make sense of them. When we understand what God's ultimately trying to accomplish, guess what? The difficulties of life are a whole lot easier to deal with. The Living Bible translates that verse. Um, it says, don't act thoughtlessly, but try to understand what God wants you to do. Now, what do you think God wants you to do? The focus in our text is not on what I want to do, but on what he wants to do. I mean, there's two, there's two different operations in life. Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So how can we, how can you, how can we know what God wants? I, I've, had, I've been asked that question. How am I going to know what God's will is? How do I know what God wants? Actually, it's pretty simple. I mean, simply by knowing and embracing the principles that are here in God's word. It's there. Read it. Sometimes it's that understanding that comes just as you kind of think things through and discuss them with another godly person. Sometimes God's will comes to us because God just, boom, reveals it in kind of a spectacular fashion. But a key to understanding that God's will is a commitment to do that will once you actually understand it. So we're talking about living our lives wisely. But there's a third step. By the way, those of you who are in Bible class this morning, I told you here's the answer to one question today. It's in the third step of the message. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, Paul actually is kind of interesting. He contrasts the command of being filled with the Spirit with being drunk on wine. He says, be filled with the Spirit, but don't get drunk on wine. That's a good question to ask you. Why do people get drunk? Oh, a long time. You all know Jackie Gleason? I remember one time somebody asked Jackie Gleason why he drank. He said, some drink to remember, some people drink to re- forget. Me, I drink to get moosed. That was his comment. I mean, he just drank to get drunk. But why do people drink to get drunk? I mean, I can think of a lot of different reasons. Uh, sometimes they do it because they're not coping well with the realities of life. Maybe they're trying to soothe a feeling of loneliness or soothing a feeling of rejection. Some people just like the buzz that they think it gives them until they start puking on themselves. I mean, some people use alcohol to bring stimulation from the outside into their lives. The problem with artificial stimulants, friends, is that it leads to addiction, it leads to excess, it leads to reckless living. They're ultimately destructive to the person. I don't care what stimulant you use, whether it's alcohol or some other drug or sexual promiscuity or gambling or anything like that. It brings temporary relief or temporary pleasure, but in the end, it does more damage rather than cure. Now, I'm not a psychologist. I just play one on television. No, not really. I'm not a psychologist, but I think I know enough about it. I mean, do you know why people are tempted to use those things? It's because they're empty. They're empty. They're not filled with the Spirit. We're not getting our basic internal needs met with a relationship with God, and so we find everything else we can to try to fill our lives. And Paul is just saying, friends, don't stimulate your life with things like wine. There's a better alternative. You know, don't get drunk on wine, get drunk on the Holy Spirit, I guess is what he would say. 
We need God. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to saturate our lives with His love, with His peace, with Himself. And when that's not happening, there's a spiritual and emotional vacuum in us. And when there's a spiritual and emotional vacuum in us, guess what, friends? It sucks everything else in. And we're vulnerable to all kinds of temptation. Now, in the first half of this chapter that Nancy didn't read before, it warned against all kinds of behavior that were destructive. But Paul doesn't just tell us what not to do. He actually tells us what we can and must do. He said, be filled with the Spirit. And without that happening, we're just not capable of doing what God wants us to do. And there's a beautiful connection between these three directives. See, be alert to the opportunities that God gives you. Make the most of them. We'll do our best if we understand the Lord's will, and we'll understand the Lord's will, how? If we are filled with the Spirit. I hate to give you, I'm giving you a Greek lesson. Can I give you an English lesson today? <laughs> Be filled. I had to look this word, I, I got to look up these words, but the, the Greek word here is plaru. Plaru. Doesn't mean anything to you. But plaru is a present plural passive imperative form. Now, I don't know if some of you English majors are going to go, what? Present plural passive imperative form. I'm going to actually kind of unfold that a little bit for you. The imperative means this is a command. God is not making a suggestion there. Like, oh, if you kind of feel like it, you might take a little spirit in. He's commanding us to be filled with the Spirit. It's not try harder, because trying harder is no substitute for being filled with the Spirit. That verb also is a plural verb in the Greek, which means every believer, every Christ follower is commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And I can tell you today, friends, on the, on the authority of God's Word... God does not want you, for example, to ever leave a church service without feeling like you've been filled somehow, or empowered somehow, or refreshed somehow. The verb is also in the present tense, which means uh, it's not a one-time deal. <clears throat> it's not like, well, you know, I got filled with the Spirit at my baptism, isn't that enough? I mean, even... Peter, in Acts chapter 2, was filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But in Acts chapter 4, it says he was filled again with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he needed the Spirit to meet that day's challenges. I mean, Peter needed a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit to deal with whatever challenges he had to make. And so to make the most of every opportunity, fill me again. It's also in the passive voice, which means you can't do this yourself. It's something that only God is able to do. You cannot make that happen. The good news is, though, that God wants to make it happen. God commands it to be happening. All he says is you just need to be a willing vessel to be filled. Now, here's a good question, $10 question of the day. How can we know when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Nancy read it to you. It's right there in God's Word. Verse 19. You will find yourselves doing things in the context of the church, for example. 
you will speak to another, uh, one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, we don't know exactly what the distinctions of those three expressions are, but the psalms were the songbook of Israel. Singing God's Word is a valid expression of worship. Hymns are Christian compositions. Spiritual songs probably are just kind of spontaneous outbursts of inspired singing. You ever had that happen in church? Spontaneous outbursts of inspired singing? See, worship can and should include those kinds of things. Now, Colossians 3, I think I put this on the screen for you. Yeah, Colossians 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That's kind of a free-flowing worship service, if you ask me. And what Scripture tells us is that when there's peace in our hearts, when there's peace in our houses, when there's peace in our churches, when we let the Word of Christ, I'm talking about the whole Word of Christ, dwell in us richly, something happens. Spiritual songs do not take place in a vacuum. They flow from hearts filled with the Word of God, filled with the Spirit. It says, sing and make melody in your hearts to the Lord. I mean, Spirit-filled worship. I don't care what kind of worship it is, but Spirit-filled worship really comes from the heart. It's not just good singing. As much as good singing is important. It's not just good instrumentation. I can't even say the word. It's not just having good musicians. What's the word I'm trying to say? In- instrumentalization? Yeah. But whatever. It's not just having good players, as, as important as that is, because it facilitates worship. But our worship is not designed to entertain. Our worship is not intended for you to walk out and say, that didn't do anything for me today. Who cares whether it did anything for you today? What did you do in worship today? I mean, we can't sit in judgment on worship. Who's looking down? It's God who's looking down and says, hmm, what kind of worship was that today? Be careful which direction we we judge this. It's designed to bring out expressions of joy, expressions of adoration, expressions of love to our God. And notice it goes two different ways, towards each other and towards the Lord. A lot of music's that way. And it tells us in verse 20, always, not just when we feel like it. Do you know how often I would be here if I only showed up when I felt like it? Be honest. How often would you be here if you just really felt like it on a Sunday morning? I'm not just picking on you. I could say the same thing to Gala. There'd be a lot. There's a lot of mornings we just don't feel like it. Yeah. But it says always, always, always giving thanks. I mean, what's God done for you lately? Let that thanksgiving and gratitude fill our hearts. And he said, and it's going to happen when we submit to one another. It's a wholesome community. I've got to tell you, a rebel is not full of the Holy Spirit. Neither is an isolationist. 
in fact, if I could summarize all of this, I'd just simply say lots of things happen when you get full. Full of the Holy Spirit, that is. So my prayer for you today, friends, is may the days ahead be filled with opportunities that you seize and enjoy. May you understand what the will of God is for your life and live accordingly. And may you be filled with his spirit. Let's stand and join together in our affirmation of faith. Words are on page four on the screen. We speak these responsibly.